This episode from the life of Tristan Milne will be transmitted through shortwave and to men and women overseas through the World Wide Web. Mammy's Malt Liquor and Brumhill Cigarettes bring you the Heatwalker Radio Hour, hosted by Johnny Sandtown, that's me, and read by Dr. Robert Price. The Brumhill Family. The family that's been there for you through it all. They were there when you got your first car. College. When your mother died. When your son was born. And just like they never stopped caring, they never stopped innovating to bring you the thickest, longest cigarette on the markets. Brumhill. A cigarette for life. Today they invite you to an innovation in entertainment as master storyteller Dr. Robert Price tells us another exciting adventure from the life and times of an American hero, Tristan Milne. And say, just before we start, I'd want you to consider what goes best with a hefty Brumhill cigarette. Some folks like cognac or scotch or even bourbon. But when you're burning a Brumhill, nothing goes down smoother than a warm, delicious bottle or glass if that's your fancy, of Mammy's Malt Liquor. Mammy's unique recipe is perfectly tailored for smokers, and because Mammy's is always served at a nice, warm, room temperature, you never have to worry about it waking you up while you're smoking in bed. Mammy's, never cold. Good evening, Doctor. Ah, good evening, Johnny. Please let me take your jacket. Good lad, good lad. So, I suppose you want a story. <laughs> That's what we're here for. What do you have in store for us? Well, my boy, this week we begin a brand new tale from the life of Tristan Milne, entitled Steam Hunt. It takes place in the year 1960 in the bayous of Louisiana. Sounds like we're in for a treat, Doctor. <laughs> indeed, indeed. Well, folks, you heard it. Sit down, relax, pour yourself a nice, warm mammies, light a Brumhill cigarette, and join us here at the Heat Walker Radio Hour for Steam Hunt. Tristan Milne hadn't been back to Louisiana in almost two decades. It seemed like he'd been just about everywhere else in those intervening years. He'd lived in New York and Los Angeles, traveled the continental USA, completed an honorary tour of duty in North Korea, made business deals in Cuba. He'd bought and lost a diamond mine in South Africa. He'd stolen priceless artifacts in Egypt and had even had a couple of unfortunate trips to Quebec. He was the mogul of the malt liquor company Mammy's, and the author of the 1930s true novel The Hot Walk, which would later go on to be made into films such as Look Who's Walking Hot and Hot Walker. Tristan had become a household brand and a symbol of American ingenuity and industry, although little was known about the man himself. To the people, he was a Charles Foster Kane, a larger-than-life symbol with a story longer and murkier than the Mississippi. To the general public, he was the Booze Baron, an iconoclast black author whose first and only novel had cut a path for other Negro artists. 
The book, which detailed Tristan's heroic turn as an Arizona park ranger, was considered by many to be a cornerstone of contemporary adult adventure fiction and a definition of American masculinity to challenge Papa. The book hadn't seen a printing since 1953 when Tristan had failed to renegotiate his book deal with Random House over a dispute involving the film rights to his work. The novel had fallen from the public eye, but Tristan had long ago parlayed his early wealth into the capital to launch a successful business selling malt liquor, based on his Mammy's recipe. In 1943, he'd purchased the rights to Al Jolson's song Mammy from the film The Jazz Singer, and the company had taken America by storm. The classic song, from a film about race and class transcendence, filled American homes and reminded the people that, unlike other brands, Mammy's was never cold, a marketing technique he'd used to save billions in refrigeration. For a time, his name was as recognized as Seabiscuit and almost as beloved by the American people, who saw Tristan as a sign of hope that their dreams of prosperity could be achieved. If a black man could do it, it was possible for anyone. As much as he was beloved by the working class, Tristan was equally hated by those in the business communities for his cutthroat corporate tactics, and had been shunned and distrusted by those in Hollywood for his outlandish ideas. True, racism was often at the forefront of these dismissals, distastes, or disposals for the bootstrapping novelist-turned-magnate, but he himself refused to give that reality any credence, often stating something to the equivalent of, Shit, it ain't even that I'm black. It's that these sons of bitches don't know I'm better than them. Though the expletives and volume of the man's voice varied. In the years since the meteoric rise and profit of Mammies, Tristan had experienced many enemies. Those that had chosen to cross him had learned the hard way that no one bested Tristan Milne and came out whole. Death was a fate that many of those who opposed him wished for in the end, but such were the tactics and methods of Milne that most of them suffered fates far worse than the verification of their own mortality. His capacity for spite almost outweighed his contempt for those who challenged his capability. Since 1951, Tristan had been aided in his ventures by his white manservant, Axel Matfin. Axel was a child survivor of his parents' post-Dust Bowl suicides who had spent his orphan childhood riding the rails of middle America, from Fuckby City south of Cincinnati to the still young gem of San Francisco. During his time riding trains, Axel had gained a reputation amongst the traveling hobos as Kid Murder, a nickname he'd earned when he'd slain several failed prospectors who'd been intent on sodomizing the miner. These days of survival and calcifying spirit had produced a 15-year-old with more hate and incurable sorrow in his heart than full-grown men who had seen the Somme and lived to talk about it. In 1939, while passing through South Carolina, Axel had found and read a copy of The Hot Walk, and the tale of righteous adventure and justice had stolen his metal heart. In the coming months, he enlisted in the army— and before long he was part of an elite platoon of soldiers that made their way into Nazi Germany to pillage some of the Fuhrer's darkest strongholds, unearthing untold horrors. When the war ended, Axel abandoned his platoon and went AWOL into the crumbling remains of post-war Europe. He spent the next few years raiding Nazi gold caches, stockpiling priceless artworks, developing several different identities, the echoes of warlike death often following in his wake. Those that allied with him often did not live to regret partnering with a man so cold and unfeeling. Not that Axel killed these people, 
at least as long as they didn't cross him. But so heightened was the tension of violence and imminent doom that surrounded him that even a day at the races could end with a championship gelding bleeding out in the parking lot, her owner missing limbs. With wealth and cachet across the underworld of Europe, he was eventually recruited by the CIA to be a spy in all corners of the globe, decrying communism without allying with any other ideology. In reality, he was closer to a fascist, although the only doctrine he held had been cemented in his brain after reading Tristan's book, and any further thoughts were his own and unknowable to any. He had met Tristan briefly in North Korea in 1950, but hadn't realized who he was talking to until it was too late. Less than a year later, and back in New York City, Axel had approached Tristan at a Manhattan cocktail bar. The two had reconnected, and Axel became Tristan's right-hand man, looking out for his hero's interests in both his business and personal life. The rest of the 1950s had been mostly martinis and cigarettes for the pair as they jumped from adventure to Mammy's business campaign to personal struggles and even their disastrous turn in the movie industry. It had been over a year since their attempts to have a film made of Tristan's book that held true to the details of the novel. It had ended in ruin. Tristan had retreated to New York to settle the details of his failed marriage to the daughter of a New York mob boss, while Axel had spent a prolonged six months in Cambodia. Recently, he'd been called back to America by way of telegram from a member of his old army platoon. The reasons for this return were unknown to Tristan, much like the rest of the details of Axel's life. Now, Tristan sat in an airplane on the tarmac at New Orleans International Airport, considering the last time he'd set foot in the Big Easy, and the harrowing experiences of his youth that had driven him from the land of his birthright. He'd flown down from New York at the behest of a telegram from Axel, saying that he had just finished his research and was looking forward to a fishing trip in the bayous of Louisiana. Wealthy, bored, and missing his friend, Tristan had responded immediately and booked a flight. He was wearing a blue suit with a white shirt and no tie, tight jerry-curled hair, and a large pair of aviator sunglasses. Tristan rested a Brumhill 2000 in his mustachioed lips and lit it as the stewardess came around to offer him another bourbon, while the Boeing 720 taxied down runways towards the terminal. Tristan accepted the beverage and leaned his head into his hands. He hadn't been home except for his mother's funeral, at which he'd been ousted by the community he'd fled when he accidentally lit his father's barbecue shack on fire as an adolescent. The ensuing flame had taken his father's life, and to Tristan, coming home was like burnt sugar in the mouth. A reminder that for all he'd conquered in his life, he would never be able to overcome the catalytic moment of mistake that had potmarked his entire existence. He exhaled smoke and bourbon breath onto the nun sitting next to him and leaned his head back while he pinched the bridge of his nose. Sister, does the Lord ever let us know when we've done enough? The nun, an elderly Hispanic woman in full habit, turned to look at him. My child, the Lord only asks for that which we can give. Tristan nodded, considered her answer and how this nun had made it into first class on this flight. Hmm. That's why I feel like this ain't done. What's not done, child? Tristan took a drag and looked out the window towards Lake Pontchartrain. Like I'm not done. Win. If the Lord wills it, your success will be ensured. Don't doubt your purpose, child. 
Tristan, susceptible to all types of flattery, took this godly woman's statement as scripture and immediately sat up straighter, the posture of his cigarette raising in his mouth, along with his bourbon hand, which he raised to his lips before he killed it with one more swing. You're right. I'm not done. But how do I start again? Moments later, the stewardess addressed the cabin with disembarking instructions, and Tristan stepped over the nun like she was a stray dog and into the aisle, reaching into the overhead for his satchel. The satchel, a tan Gucci traveling bag, contained the following. A walnut-handled snub-nosed Smith & Wesson 38, a box of ammo and cleaning kit, a flask of Cuddy Sark scotch, a half-carton of Brunhill 2000s, Swiss Army knife, the day's Washington Post, a pair of tortoiseshell square frame sunglasses, $500 cash, and a vial of medically prescribed cocaine. He walked off the plane and into the airport, almost instantly lighting another cigarette and loosening the collar on his shirt, the Louisiana humidity and heat dense in the airport full of, as Tristan saw it, mouth-breathing backwater inbreds and middle America idiots. He briskly moved through the airport into the arrivals hallway where he spotted Axel, smoking, black square sunglasses on his face and a white linen shirt, tan slacks and hiking boots standing with a sign that read T. Milne. Tristan approached him. I made it. How was the flight? Fucking awful. You know that when I fly, I prefer to be seated by a buxom woman and serve some mammies? Sure. Well, they sat me next to a nun in an empty seat and served me scotch. Now I'm half in the bag and didn't even renew my Mile High Club membership. If they'd... Well... If they just had some mammies, then maybe I could have made it through the flight and been nice and relaxed. But now I'm flush on whiskey and I could drop a load of Philly. Hey, we got time to swing by Bourbon Street? No dice. As Axel took the remains of his unfiltered Pall Mall from his lips, flipping it into the parking lot, they walked towards the small sea of parked cars. We're in a strict timeline. We have to check in at the lodge before five. Mm-hmm. Tristan didn't approve, but acquiesced. Axel was driving a beat-up red and rusted 1955 Dodge Power Wagon with a wrecker setup, hydraulic arm crane in the back and a winch up front. Strapped to the bed of the truck was an array of tools, spades, shovels, a pickaxe, a regular axe, and a long coil of serious rope. The two men approached the vehicle and Tristan looked it over, kicking the tires. Not bad, not bad. What are we fishing for? You can laugh. Axel pressed another cigarette into his lips and lit it with his silver Zippo. His brand was Paul Mall, and it had been since 1939. But where we're going, there's tell of a catfish that's over ten feet long. <laughs> what a bunch of bullshit. Who ever heard of some fucking fish being that great? Tristan got into the passenger side door as Axel got in the truck and fired up the ignition. The truck's immense Detroit engine barked to life and, smoke and mouth, Axel backed the truck out of the spot and began to drive out of the airport parking lot. Once they were on the highway, Axel opened the glove compartment to reveal a Browning 45 semi-auto, a box of ammunition, and two bottles of mammies. Tristan reached in and then withdrew a custom ebony-handled bottle opener from his pocket to deftly doff the caps on the pair of bottle mamas. The bottle opener had been a gift from Axel and contained in the handle a four-inch double-sided blade that had kissed human flesh more than once since the item had been gifted. Tristan passed a bottle to Axel, who kept his eye on the road, but nodded with the rim of the glass container. After a couple of swigs, Tristan lit another Brumhill 2K and exhaled with a heavy heart. Well, I thank you, my friend. I needed to get away for a spell. 
problem with the company. Nah, nah, Mammy's is doing just fine. Profits are up and costs are down since we started hiring those dope fiend Mexicans. It's just... Hmm? I don't know what to do next. I mean, I done done it all or all I can do. That's so. Axel reached forward and turned on the truck's radio, which teetered at the end of an advertisement. General Master, we own the future. And then, walk and reel hot and low by Muddy Waters came on the station, and Tristan fired his hand forward to turn the radio off in a snap motion. Oh, no. I'll never want to hear that song again. After the success of the novel The Hot Walk and the ensuing onslaught of licensing that followed, it provided Tristan with the means to begin his fledgling liquor empire. But it had come at the cost of almost all of his original intellectual property being sold off to median bidders who'd made mockeries of his source material. One of the first travesties to occur had been in the process of making the first of the film adaptations, when Tristan had been annexed for any producing credit by the entirely white studio, RKO. But they had already promised the soundtrack to Muddy Waters. Muddy had produced what he felt was one of his greatest works. But since it fell under the banner of film product, the studio had sidelined the music in favor of a more standard adventure score for their Kirk Douglas-led Walking Hot. Muddy himself had been incensed, which resulted in a falling out between him and Tristan. The Muddy Water songs had been released piecemeal by Columbia over the past five years, and every time a new song came out, Tristan was subjected to a reminder of one of his few true failures. I don't control the radio. Yeah, I'm sorry. Damn, it just wound up so tight. Hollywood was pretty bad. The goddamn worst. You know, we have to go back there someday. Tristan sat in silence. He knew. He knew that he wasn't done with the film industry, and he knew those sons of bitches had to pay. But he was here, today, for now, to forget that. He took a swig of his mammies. So why here? Why'd you bring me down here? Something I gotta look into. Figured we might as well go fishing while I was at it. And that was the last of the conversation until they got to the lodge. The lodge was, in reality, a beat-up old shit shack on stilts, with a stovepipe reaching out the top and an aging shit pile mounting beneath it. The main building was surrounded by a variety of other ramshackle structures, tool sheds or fish-cutting stations spread along the edge of a boat launch that raised in an abrupt manner from the edge of the water. In the water was a small metal fishing boat that had seen better days, and was equipped with a two-stroke outboard. The men had stopped just outside the adjacent town, Petite Folk, at a filling station to pick up the keys from some hick who'd made the mistake of trying to make conversation with Axel. Axel had just stared at him until he'd finished speaking. They got out of the truck and looked around at the haunted daylight cutting through the trees of the bayou. Axel reached back into the truck for his gun from the glove box, tucking it into the holster at the small of his back, and then a bottle of Jack Daniels. He carried the bottle by the neck and led Tristan up to the main shack. There was a small gust of cold wind across the property, so distinct in the humid afternoon air. This place a little spooky. This is Louisiana. Everything's a little spooky. 
Axel climbed the steps up to the shack and pushed in the rigid old door, which gave way to dust, dirt, and cobwebs. There were two cots half set up on either side of the room and a dual cooking and heating stove in the middle. There were several banks of cupboards, an empty gun rack, and a crate marked dynamite, but not much else. Axel crossed to the cupboards and pulled out two tin cups, checking them for spiders before he dealt Tristan and himself a generous pour of liquor. Axel raised his glass to Tristan. To getting away. With everything. The two men clinked their cups together before downing the booze and lighting another pair of smokes. Forty-five minutes later, and both men were climbing into the boat down by the water, bringing a sixer of mammies, the now half-finished bottle of Jack, and four fresh packs of cigarettes. They'd found the house fishing poles in one of the adjacent shacks, and had set themselves up a few different leaders before they'd made their way down to the boat. Who the fuck would name a boat Lenin? Someone who stayed in Leningrad. The early evening water was starting to cool. The array of bugs and creatures living in the bayou, coming out or going home depending on what their schedule was. The boat ambled to the near middle of their immediate section of the water, and the two men cast their lines out of either side of the boat and cracked open a lukewarm mammy's. Somewhere in the distance, a crane called. Ah, shucks, we still done okay. We beat just about everyone we ever come up against. Tristan looked at Axel as if there were a possibility he might have something to say on the subject, but he didn't, so Tristan continued. But I'm not done. I just don't know where to start again. I mean, I know those Jews in Hollywood think they seen the last of me, but they thinking wrong. Too much of their minds on the tariff deals with Israel and the Casa Orange juice. Nah, I just need one more good win under my belt. But I've already done pulverized everyone in my path. Whether those son bitches at Anhal Bush or those cheating pricks of the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms, none of them can stand to me. But now, I mean, I can't go back to Hollywood until I got something to show them. Something new. Something that's got that trust mill magic. And this time, this time, I'm going to make my movie. Axel just nodded. Then Tristan's line went tripwire taut so fast it snapped an arc of water across the surface and almost cost him the rod. Tristan caught grip of his fishing pole tight and just in time to anchor himself at the mast of the boat before the entire vessel was being towed through the water. What the fuck? Tristan held on for dear life while the bow dipped into the water, sending spray cascading over the liquor magnate. Doctor No. Axel reached into the outboard and started up the engine, beginning to angle the boat away from the pull of some immense monster of a fish. Axel half stood for a second and saw the outline of what appeared to be a deep sea monster pulling them ahead. Yeah? Yeah? Come and get you, son bitch! Then, just as Axel was riding the boat to make maximum torque against the fish, the beast vaunted in the opposite direction, and Tristan was hauled over, being dragged behind the creature. Axel yelled from the boat and watched his friend hold tight to the rod and go plowing through the water, the wake as chaotic and messy as his friend's failing. Before long, Tristan was over 30 feet away from the boat. Then, the fish suddenly stopped, and Tristan descended into the water. The mushy, infested bottom of the bayou as scary as the bottom of the ocean. He began to tread water. Then Axel saw the fish turn around 
its huge pale body glowing up out of the scummy surface, and turn back to Tristan. Get the fuck out of there! Axel yanked his forty-five from its holster and began to draw a beat on the silhouette of the catfish. Axel could shoot a man between the eyes at thirty-five paces, but with Tristan's arms flapping in the water, there was no good shot. Then something happened that neither man would have believed had they simply been told about it. The immense fish, Axel could now tell it was closer to twelve feet long, slowed and came face to face with Tristan in the water. It paused like it was looking at him. Yeah? What the fuck you want? Think you got the sand to finish the job? I dare ya! You think my hand's gonna be some fucking fish? Fuck you! Then the fish paused for another moment, considering whether Tristan was worth his time, before making his decision and disappearing into the waters of the bayou. Axel brought the boat up alongside Tristan and hauled him up. Tristan panted, and Axel handed him a cigarette and a mammy's while both men sat down in the boat and wiped the sweat from their brows. No one said anything for a while. Then Tristan spoke. Axel, I don't know why you're here, what you're looking into, and if it has anything to do with those gold problems of yours, but one thing is for sure, we ain't leaving here till I kill that fucking fish. My oh my, that was this week's episode of Steam Hunt, here on the Heatwalker Radio Hour. I'm your host, Johnny Sandtown, and this is me telling you to keep walking it hot. Good night. Heatwalker Productions presents the Heatwalker Radio Hour. Steam Hunt, Chapter 1 Starring Tristan Milne and Axel Madfin Johnny Sandtown and Dr. Robert Bryce Featuring the voice talents of Mr. Sam Rushton Joel Butler Recorded with Eagle Ear Recording at Suna Studios Engineered by Larry Litch Editing by Larry Litch Tristan Milne and Axel Madfin. Original score performed by Matt CBB. Composed by Matt CBB and Tristan Milne. Foley designed by Axel Madfin and Tristan Milne. Art design and direction. Tristan Milne and uh, Axel Madfin. Executive producer Axel Madfin. Produced by Tristan Milne. The World of Heat Walker, created by Tristan Milne and Axel Madfin. The novel, Steam Hunt, written by Axel Madfin and Tristan Milne. Adapted for radio by Axel Madfin and Joel Butler. Directed by Axel Madfin and Tristan Milne. Heatwalker, The Hot Walk, Steam Hunt, and all original properties therein are the exclusive property of Heatwalker Productions and may not be reproduced in any form without express written consent. 